a regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards, and I am glad that you are with us on the program today. In this, uh, we're still in, uh, you know, election limbo, still waiting to uh, see how the uh, 2020 presidential election is going to end up. Uh, we uh, do have a little bit of news out of the U.S. Senate, though. I uh, reported on this this morning at uh, BarryAndArms.com. Joe Manchin, uh, Democrat from West Virginia, saying that he will not be the uh, 50th vote uh, to uh, uh, remove the filibuster in the Senate and to pack the Supreme Court. Uh, that puts a lot of pressure, by the way, on uh, Joe Manchin, by the way, among his fellow Democrats who... Um, uh, you know, there's this war going on. I mean, we're seeing in the post-election environment uh, splits on the right and on the left. Uh, I think uh, there are deeper splits on the left right now, quite frankly, uh, between, you know, the quote-unquote moderates like Joe Manchin or uh, uh, Connor Lamb, who was uh, complaining about uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Abigail Spanberger. And then you got the squad. You got the uh, the socialist wing of the Democrat Party. I think that those divisions are actually deeper than what you're seeing right now among uh, the, compared to, you know, the folks on the right, the uh, the the Trump supporters, the uh, uh, never Trumpers, the anti anti Trumpers. I know I can't keep track of any of this stuff, um, but I am kind of fascinated to see how this is playing out, particularly on the left, uh, because that is where the energy for gun control comes these days. Right. It's not coming from the right. So you look at the split on the left right now. Uh, not only in terms of are we going to, you know, um, uh, go full bore with a uh, democratic socialist agenda or are going to try to present a more moderate front for the next couple of years so that uh, Democrats don't get their rear ends handed to them in the uh, midterms. While all of that is is playing out, you know, we're obviously watching what this means for gun control. Uh, if Joe Manchin is not going to go along with uh, removing the filibuster. That means that Democrats can't pack the court. He would not be the, uh, they, they would need every Democrat to sign on in order to uh, have the votes to change the rules. And Manchin says he's not going to do it. Now, I, I'll be curious. We uh, talked about this during our uh, reporting this morning. I'll be curious to see if Joe Manchin doesn't actually end up as a member of the Republican Party uh, here in the next couple of months, but uh, he's certainly going to be a thorn in the side of, uh, of of Democrats who are hoping to advance this anti-gun legislative agenda. I'm not saying that it is out of the question. I don't necessarily trust Joe Manchin, to be perfectly honest with you, uh, but that is what he is saying right now. And while it looks like, again, the Senate and the House are going to be very closely divided, which is good news for gun owners in terms of being able to stop Joe Biden's legislative agenda, we certainly know that uh, Biden is going to be using, if he does get elected president and is sworn in, uh, we know that he is going to be using the power of the executive branch to promulgate policies, executive actions, regulations through ATF, uh, the Treasury Department, to go after gun owners, firearms manufacturers, to do basically everything that he can within the executive branch to curtail our Second Amendment rights. One of the things that uh, Biden had talked about was um, looking at strategies to, you know, get involved at the local level. And there's really nothing objectionable about some of the things that, that he's calling for, uh, you know, grants to address uh, community anti-violence programs and things of that nature. This is part of the split, actually, that's, that's happening on the left. We've talked about this over the past few months, 
where there is a portion of the Democratic Party, and it's actually sort of the far left portion of the Democratic Party, the anti-police faction within the Democratic Party, who is um, not as amenable to the old school gun control proposals as folks like Joe Biden, because these old school gun control proposals rely on police to actually enforce these gun control laws. This is going to be a a big topic on the left, I think. I mean, it may fly under the radar. I don't know that there's going to be a lot of media reporting, but folks are already talking about this. Matter of fact, there was a report that came out just a couple of days ago from the John Jay College Research Advisory Group on Preventing and Reducing Community Violence. Reducing Violence Without Police, a Review of Research Evidence. Now, I got to tell you, I was kind of excited when I saw this. I thought, oh, good, maybe maybe they're starting to really take this idea seriously of, uh, you know, these gun control laws that uh, end up putting people in prison for nonviolent, you know, possessory offenses. Maybe that's not the way to go. And then I actually read the report, or at least I read a portion of the report. And there are, uh, again, uh, you know, page after page of uh, uh, material dealing with uh, programs that have been successful in reducing violent crime that do not involve law enforcement, that don't involve the typical gun control laws. But then you get to this section. Confront the gun problem. Yes, implementing comprehensive and uniform gun policies can decrease the use of firearms and violent acts. Violence has been reduced by policy mechanisms that limit access to guns and increase restrictions for individuals with violent crime backgrounds, reduce access to guns by young people, impose waiting periods, and increase required training. All right, so in a report that, again, is all about reducing violence without involving the police, (laughs) yeah, they're actually involving the police. Now, they have a laundry list of items here. So long, I, I couldn't even fit them all in one page. But look at this. Confront the gun problem. Here are their proposals. Tell me how many of these proposals actually involve law enforcement. In a report that's all about reducing violence without involving law enforcement, prohibit people with previous convictions for domestic violence charges from possessing or purchasing firearms. Well, that's actually already the law. Uh, Enact child access prevention laws. In other words, storage laws. Okay, well, how, how do those laws get enforced if not by law enforcement? Reduce firearm availability for individuals with documented histories of interpersonal violence. Uh, That, again, sounds like you're going to be involved in law enforcement, right? Either somebody's a prohibited person, they've been convicted of a a felony or domestic violence misdemeanor, uh, or they've been adjudicated mentally defective, or it could be that gun control activists are talking about red flag laws which also, again, involve law enforcement coming to your home to take your firearms. In a report that is all about the police not being involved here, every one of these agenda items so far has involved police. Uh, Implement handgun uh, purchaser licensing laws. Okay, that too is going to involve the police because the issue in authority uh, in uh, uh, most jurisdictions, either your county sheriff or your local police. As a matter of fact, in Massachusetts, and I, I bring up Massachusetts because Ayanna Presley, um, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's buddy in Congress, representative from Massachusetts, she introduced legislation last year. It didn't go anywhere, but she introduced legislation, and it kind of was picked up, actually, by the Biden 
campaign. You can find a version of this uh, in his campaign materials on the, uh, the gun safety page where she wanted to give federal grant money to states that would implement Massachusetts-style gun licensing laws. The problem is, well, there are a lot of problems. One of the biggest problems with this proposal is that in Massachusetts, and I'm talking about one of the biggest problems from the left's perspective, not even from gun owners' perspectives, but one of the biggest problems with this proposal from the left's perspective is that in Massachusetts, it's up to the local police chief to decide if you are suitable to own a firearm, if you are suitable to get a gun license. So you can pass a background check. You can meet all of the statutory requirements. And the police chief can just decide, yeah, you know what? I'm just getting a bad feeling about you. They don't have to have any specific reason whatsoever to deny you. They have that leeway to deny you for any reason or no reason whatsoever. Now, again, you want to talk about reducing violence without getting law enforcement involved? Well, that would not, that would preclude establishing these types of handgun purchaser laws that would uh, prohibit the average citizen from exercising their Second Amendment rights. All right, let's go back to the list here. Remove stand your ground laws. Yeah, the gun control groups believe that to stand your ground you know, actually creates violent crime. Uh, it does not. Homicides in the state of Florida, where uh, Stand Your Ground first introduced, have actually continued to decline. Violent crime overall has continued to decline uh, after Stand Your Ground laws were put on the books. But again, they're looking for ways to uh, uh, target legal gun owners and to, quite frankly, make it more difficult to act in self-defense. They also want to add waiting periods for purchasing firearms. Yeah. They uh, also talk about implement mandated reporting of lost or stolen firearms. Again, this is a law that would be enforced by law enforcement. Uh, utilize strong regulation and oversight of license. Oh, I missed one. Extend background check requirements to private transfers. Okay, again, you're, you're getting law enforcement involved. Who polices the background checks? By the way, there is no way to proactively enforce a universal background check law. There's just not. It's easy, and I, I don't think a lot of non-gun owners understand this. Hey, well, why well, shouldn't you have a background check on every uh, gun sale? Well, again, how do you make sure that that happens? I mean, it's one thing to police a gun store, somebody who is in the business of selling firearms, right? The ATF can go in, they can look at their books, they can conduct an audit. Uh, if uh, police get a tip that guns are being sold, you know, off the books, under the table, without background checks being performed, they could uh, uh, go and investigate. How do you stop a neighbor selling a firearm to a neighbor without going through a background check? How do you stop that? How do you prevent that? How does a universal background check law prevent that from happening? It doesn't. Which is why Washington State, which passed universal background checks in 2016, has seen just a handful of prosecutions. New Mexico, which passed universal background checks in uh, 2018, has yet to see a prosecution. Virginia, which imposed universal background checks earlier this year, has yet to see an arrest or a prosecution. These things don't actually do anything to reduce violent crime. They're completely unenforceable from a proactive standpoint, at best, 
They're a charge that could be filed after a gun was used in a crime, an arrest has been made. You say, well, how'd you get the gun? Well, you know, my neighbor sold it to me. Did you go to the background check? Nah, he just, you know, sold it to me. It's silly. But again, it also still involves law enforcement. Uh, utilize strong regulation and oversight of licensed gun sellers, also involving law enforcement. And uh, maintain no issue or may issue laws rather than shall issue laws. And again, we go back to the idea of the subjective standards that law enforcement have in some states like Massachusetts or California or New York, Maryland, New Jersey. There's really only about eight states left that are may issue when it comes to the uh, the right to carry. There are twice as many states that are constitutional carry as there are may issue states. But again, we're involving law enforcement. And not only, by the way, are we involving law enforcement at the, uh, at the front end in terms of, uh, you know, having the discretion to deny the average citizen their right to bear arms. But of course, <laughs> law enforcement's involved on the back end as well. You know, in New York City, for example, about 70% of the cases in uh, Brooklyn's gun court uh, are uh, charges of carrying a farm without a license. And the average New York resident can't get a license to carry. So New York, again, a may-issue state. And it really, it's, it's more of a no-issue city in a may-issue state. And to the gun control groups, they say that's great, right? The, the folks compiling the support, they, we need more of that. Do you? Because again, how do those may issue or no issue laws get enforced when somebody is caught carrying a farm without a license? It's the cops. And then it's the courts. And in New York City, it's a three and a half year prison sentence for the nonviolent possessory offense of carrying a farm without a license that the average citizen cannot obtain. So again, I, I go back to the, uh, the the title of this report, Reducing Violence Without Police. And they do offer a lot of strategies, but they completely undercut the intention of their report with their section on dealing with guns. Because all of a sudden, they've found a lot of room for police to maneuver. They found a lot of space for law enforcement to be involved, including arresting and putting people in prison for something that is protected by the Second Amendment, keeping and bearing arms. Again, you know, I was hopeful when I saw this uh, report. I thought, wait, maybe, you know what, maybe we're turning the corner here. But the gun control uh, crowd, as much as they acknowledge, okay, you know what, um, among our base on the left, Police aren't seen as uh, protectors of the community. They're, they're, they're seen as uh, uh, you know, a force that needs to be curtailed. And so we got to look for ways to uh, reduce violent crime without involving the police. Even with that mindset, they can't break away from the traditional gun control models of reducing legal gun ownership and enforcing those restrictions that reduce legal gun ownership by police officers, both local, state, and federal law enforcement. That's, that ultimately is a, going to be a continued problem as we talk again about the split on the left. 
this is a, a divide, I think, even among some uh, in the, let's call it the gun violence prevention community. Well, I won't even call it the gun control movement. I'll call it the gun violence prevention community because there are still some voices out there who say, listen, no. Anything that's going to result in, uh, you know, mass criminalization or, or mass imprisonment, mass incarceration, we're not on board with that. Let's look at these, you know, violence interrupters. Let's look at these programs that uh, try to turn people away from violent crime as opposed to imposing new restrictions on, uh, on people uh, owning firearms. Now, admittedly, that's a pretty small voice right now in the gun violence prevention community. Uh, but the fact that this report, again, all about ways to reduce violent crime without getting police involved, ultimately involves a lot of law enforcement. So I would uh, tell the uh, academics involved in this uh, project at John Jay College, back to the drawing board, because the uh, headline of your report certainly uh, does not really look like what's actually contained within. All right, on to our uh, good deed of the day, our armed citizen story, our recidivist report. We'll start there with a case out of Maryland where an 18-year-old convicted in Annapolis in a a shooting managed to avoid a 20-year prison sentence. Yeah, thanks to a, a nice judge. It's from the uh, Capitol Gazette. Circuit Judge Pamela Alban in uh, Anne Arundel County, Maryland, handed down a sentence of 20 years in prison for Jarek James Downs, uh, stemming from a double shooting in Annapolis. But then she turned around and suspended all but 18 months of that 20-year prison sentence and ordered the uh, young man to uh, serve his time at the Anne Arundel County Detention Center as opposed to uh, the state prison. She said that she was giving Downs a chance to realize his potential but wouldn't hesitate to lock him up if he balks at the terms of his five years of probation. Yeah, if he does, she said, she would impose the remainder of time behind bars. He said, uh, you have so much promise, I want that promise to come to life. This is your one and last shot to stay away from the prison system. She waived his court fee saying, I don't want your money, I want you to get your life and act together. This is actually a gift under the facts of this case. Hell yeah, it is. The question is whether or not Downs actually deserved that present. He entered an Alford plea back in October to second-degree assault, reckless endangerment, being a minor in possession of a firearm. Uh, originally charged with attempted murder, among other felony offenses, uh, that Alford plea indicates that uh, Downs acknowledged prosecutors had enough evidence to convict him in a trial, but he still maintains his innocence. State Attorney's Office said the two victims of the case had refused to participate in proceedings, which was a problem. Without witnesses, it's kind of hard to build a case. And that is uh, probably a big reason why a plea deal was offered to Downs in the first place. But one of the victims actually came forward at the last minute. According to the Capitol Gazette, Jamar Howard spoke not only to prosecutors, but to a Downs attorney, Kathleen Kircher, after reading about Downs' plea. Uh, for days after Downs accepted uh, a prosecutor's offer, the man who prosecutors said refused to come to court wanted to say something. He submitted an affidavit saying he wasn't sure who shot him, but he was certain that it wasn't Downs. Uh, And then the defense attorney filed papers to withdraw Downs' plea. Uh, That motion, however, made moot after a conversation between the defense attorney, Downs, and his mother. Uh, The attorney declined to comment on the affidavit, but said that, uh, quote, I'm relieved of the outcome because too often we throw away potential. And that didn't happen uh, in this case. Yeah. You know, listen, I, I, I hope that Mr. Downs 
takes advantage of this gift? I really do. Um, even the judge, I think, ultimately believes that Downs deserved some actual punishment. She said, I think you deserved more than 18 months, but I'm not sending you to the big jail. Well, again, that slap on the wrist, hopefully enough to uh, turn the life of uh, Jarek James Downs around, but I, I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm, I'm not confident in the uh, outcome here. And it should be noted that a guy who was once accused of attempted murder is going to do less time behind bars than uh, somebody who could just be caught in possession of a firearm without a license in the state of Maryland. Now, now maybe that person, that hypothetical individual, maybe they'd get a plea bargain too, but on paper, Downs got less time behind bars than he would have been eligible for had he simply been caught carrying a farm without a license. So maybe rather than, you know, a criminal justice system that reduces all of these charges down to nothingness for violent criminals, maybe we need a criminal justice system that actually focuses on the violent criminals and gets rid of some of the BS nonviolent possessory firearm offenses that are on the books. Just saying. All right, today's armed citizen story from uh, the Lone Star State of Texas, where an accused burglar shot by a resident in West Laco, Texas. Sheriff's Office responded to a uh, location in rural West Laco just before uh, 4 o'clock Sunday afternoon on a call of a uh, burglary with a habitation, or burglary of a habitation. According to the Monitor newspaper, uh, the sheriff's deputies met with the victim who stated that two armed men wearing black masks entered his residence without permission. The victim discharged his firearm, believed he struck one of the suspects. Both suspects then quickly fled the location in a red vehicle. Not long after, the West Laco Police Department found the wounded suspect in his vehicle at a local hospital. 33-year-old Aiden Isaguire later died of the gunshot wound. The other uh, masked suspect remains at large at this point. Sheriff's release says that the investigator is currently working to identify the other parties involved. Uh, but right now... They uh, don't have any idea who that might be. The uh, homeowner not facing any charges, of course, because he was acting in self-defense inside his own uh, domicile. So we'll keep an eye on any updates out of that story from uh, rural West Laco County, Texas, and uh, give you any updates as they become available. Finally, our good deed of the day from uh, just down the road, for me anyway, in uh, Farmville, Virginia, Richmond, Virginia, where a uh, Richmond police officer saved a woman from a, uh, a suicide attempt just a couple of days ago, this is a, a heartbreaking story, and I'm so glad it has a happy ending. It was November the 3rd, Jason Jones, who's a officer in the 1st Precinct, and several other officers responded for a report of a suicidal woman who was threatening to set herself on fire. When Officer Jones arrived on the scene, he found the woman standing there on the sidewalk next to a plastic milk container filled with gasoline. woman reeked of gas. She said that she had just poured uh, a gas on herself, clothes dripping wet. She held a lighter in her hand. Officer Jones then directed other officers to uh, block traffic and stand by with fire extinguishers. And he started talking to her. He just started talking to her. He used uh, crisis intervention training tactics, eventually convinced the woman to drop the lighter, 
She was taken to a local hospital to get mental health treatment. Richmond Police Department on their Facebook page said the quick and effective actions taken by Officer Jones undoubtedly contributed to saving this woman's life. Outstanding work. We are so proud of you and uh, so proud that you are part of the Richmond Police Department family. So in the right place, at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing. Officer Jason Jones, we thank you for your very, very good deed. And I, I do just want to note that if you are struggling right now, or if you know somebody who's struggling right now, and I, I know that a lot of folks are, please don't give up. Somebody cares about you more than you know, probably. And if you need somebody to talk to, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. Again, that is 1-800-273-8255. If you need that number or somebody you know needs that number, please make sure they call. Please make sure that, uh, that, that they get the help, that you get the help that you need. Uh, because as crazy as the world is right now, it, it, their life is still worth living. I promise you that. And there are better days ahead. That is all the time we've got for you on this edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. But I do want to thank you for being a part of the program today. Uh, coming up tomorrow, we'll be doing our weekly live chat with Mr. Ed Morsey of Hot Air for our VIP Gold members. You can sign up and be a part of that at BarryAndArms.com. You can also uh, subscribe to Town Hall Media on YouTube. That way you'll never miss one of these programs. Or if you like the podcast version, you can just go to Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts. You can find us there as well. Thank you again for all of your support. Thanks for being a part of the program today. And we'll see you back here tomorrow with another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. Until then, be safe. Be well and be free.